the other thing is we have such a strong story that we've taken from Holland where we we started from nothing and now we've built to you know the number one brand 20% market share and, and I think if you take a great product and a bit of data and a bit of a story to most buyers then I think that's a pretty compelling argument The Chocolate Bonds was an idea where, knowing that we had great customers who had often written to me saying, oh, you know, anytime that, you know, we can get more involved in the business, you know, count us in and that type of thing, just made us think, well, we'd rather be giving the interest to our lovely customers than to a bank. I remember a conversation I'll never forget around about 2005 when I, I met an Australian barista trainer and the words to me were, you can't polish a turd. If the agricultural product doesn't have that intrinsic joy in it, you can't roast it in. Hi, and welcome to the Fifth Wave podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, editor-in-chief of coffee business magazine, Fifth Wave. Now, there are many parallels between coffee and chocolate. Both are great tasting products, both agricultural products grown in and around the equator by farmers working very hard for low incomes. These two global industries are worth over $100 billion each and are dominated by large corporate players, producing products that contribute to endless enjoyment and are very much part of our daily lives. So today, in the true spirit of Christmas and happy holidays, we're unwrapping the world of chocolate to give you an insight into the business of chocolate and how it relates to coffee. We're going to be looking at a whole spectrum of companies from established players to fresh upstarts. We'll hear from Angus Thurwell, CEO and co-founder of Hotel Chocolat. Angus reveals how his out-of-the-box thinking created an enticing customer experience that has since scaled to over 100 Hotel Chocolat retail stores globally. We'll be hearing from Ben Greensmith, General Manager of Tony's Chocolonely UK and Ireland. The brand is currently shaking up the UK's premium chocolate bar market after winning over the hearts of the Dutch. But first up, we're speaking to David Dondi, a key figure in the South African specialty coffee community, who has decided now is the time to make waves in chocolate. David is the founding chairman of SCAZA, the Specialty Coffee Association of Southern Africa. He's also an international judge and founder of Truth Coffee, a world-renowned cafe roastery in Cape Town. But David's coffee journey was hit hard when COVID temporarily brought his cafe revenues to zero. Ever the entrepreneur, David has used this crisis to forge a new path into the world of specialty chocolate. Although it's early days, we get a glimpse into David's thinking as he sets off to shake up an industry stuck in old habits. Old habits that look a lot like those in coffee in the 1980s. I have the pleasure to be here today with David Dondi, who's the CEO and founder of Truth Coffee. Welcome, David. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be with you. You've been one of the pioneers of specialty coffee in South Africa. You know, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into coffee. So, yeah, I, I thought I knew a whole lot about coffee and ended up going to New Zealand and discovering the first specialty coffee roaster I'd ever seen around 1999. I ended up buying about three years later a country hotel and nobody would supply me fresh coffee. And I ended up starting a small roaster and 
That led to establishing Origin Coffee Roasting, which was the first speciality roaster in South Africa, and then uh, going on to build Truth, and the rest of the say is history. Well, Truth is a, quite a legendary establishment. Brash, bold, iconic, you know, absolutely insane, really. Good. What's the vision of Truth? <laughs> I think the outward skin of Truth is the steampunk thematic environment, which isn't the brand of Truth, but it, it's certainly the visual and it was always the idea that if you're going to speak to quality, you have to speak it everywhere you are, how you dress, what you do. And uh, it came out of a conversation with the designer on an unrelated product. He, he had turned to me and said, you know what you are, David, at that point in time? And I said, what? And he said, steampunk. And from that moment, I knew I had to build a steampunk cafe. Great. But your plans to move into an adjacent space which is the space of chocolate. Is that just sort of rough outline plans at this moment, or is this a concrete plan or something you're moving forward with? We sat down in COVID where our turnover went to zero. And I was responsible for 60, well, I still am, for 60 members of staff and their welfare and government programs at that point were paying absolutely nothing. And we did the deep thought and we went, how do we have a product that could be more resilient you know, speciality coffee doesn't travel particularly well. And I quickly realized that chocolate had a lot of parallels to coffee. And then I started looking deeper into the world of chocolate. And for the most part, and there are some notable exceptions, chocolate seems to me to be stuck where coffee was in, in the 1980s and 1990s in terms of supply chain, thinking, roasting, processing, tasting. I started thinking about chocolate in that space and going, could we do for, for coffee, which was, in, when I started, considered a bitter, vile drink that needed sugar to make it palatable, could we do the same for, for chocolate? Because I'm seeing a lot of chocolates on the market that are often sugar-free, and I have to say I found almost all of them either disgusting or with things in them to make them sweet that were worse than the sugar that they were replacing. So the, the long and the short is we spent that time in lockdown developing and we've got a two-component chocolate now which is artisan roasted cacao and milk powder and that's it two ingredients and it's incredible and it's ticking all the boxes wow can't wait to taste yeah absolutely so what are the parallels between coffee and chocolate I think the first parallel is pretty obvious. You're dealing with an agricultural product that needs the Maillard process to produce flavor. And I think that's where chocolate, in my opinion, has lost its way. If you're buying a, a green bean on either side that has no inherent complexity, interest, nuance, or flavor, then the only thing you're able to do is produce this burnt flavor as a compensator. And then the second opportunity is one of the pieces I didn't tell you about building Truth Coffee was my methodology, which has been from the beginning. I got incredibly lucky when I started roasting coffee in that I had nobody to teach me. I had no mentors. I had a guy who sold me a secondhand roaster. He said, there's where you switch it on and you take it out when it's brown. And my, my mind and my background didn't allow me to accept that. I had to go, what if? What if we do it shorter, longer, hotter, slower, faster, cooler, and building this empirical learning model? And applying that to chocolate is exactly the same thing. Yes, there's some additional processes in chocolate, but then we've got the blending and, and the molding and the tasting and, and those things which have exact parallels. So parallels are agriculture, roasting, Anything else? Yeah, I think bean selection is, is the most important. I remember a conversation I'll never forget. 
around about 2005 when I, I met an Australian barista trainer and her words to me were, you can't polish a turd. And I don't care how clever you are in the roastery, if the agricultural product doesn't have that intrinsic joy in it, you can't roast it in. And I think that is a parallel and a problem that that chocolate is facing. And when I started having that conversation with chocolate, certainly with the bigger suppliers, they went, huh? And that was the end of the conversation. Do you want it from this country or not? What are the sort of the punches in the face that you're going to avoid with all your experience in coffee? Yeah, looking back at your coffee career and going, I learned that I'm definitely not going to do that or I'm going to apply new thinking into my chocolate business. I think the mistakes I made in coffee were not being brave enough in the beginning with where I sourced my beans from, playing it small and safe. And I'm not going to do any of those things this time. And I'm not going to worry about market acceptability of a new people who are in love with the idea of something new and consider what is there out there to be broken as much as I do and really embrace those early adopters and the people who are going to get it and not worry about the mass market who think what I'm doing is sheer lunacy. Thanks, David. We wish you great luck with your new venture and we'll be following it very closely here at Fifth Wave. Thanks so much. Next up, we're looking at a high-quality chocolate brand that is now disrupting the European chocolate market. Tony's Chocolate Lonely is now the biggest chocolate brand in the Netherlands with global revenues of over 90 million euros a year. However, under their playful, colorful wrappers, Tony's Chocolate Lonely is actually powered by a humanitarian mission to remove child and slave labor from the entire chocolate industry. Despite entering the UK market only recently, Within 18 months, the brand has already found considerable distribution across the country's supermarkets and retail shelves. Ben Greensmith, General Manager of Tony's Shocker Lonely UK and Ireland, joins me to tell us where the brand came from and how it plans to climb to the top of the UK chocolate market. Specialty coffee roasters, take note. Welcome, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the brand Tony's Shocker Lonely where it was founded, what was the vision and the impact you're making on the industry? Our mission at Tony's is to make chocolate free of slavery and child labor. Tony's started 15 years ago in Holland, where three Dutch journalists uncovered these issues as part of a TV program. These three journalists, one of whom was called Tony, they were on a TV program called Curing Dienst van Vader which basically means food unwrapped, food uncovered. And they used to look at brand claims, marketing claims, food supply chains. And one of the things they stumbled across was these problems in the cocoa industry. And they couldn't quite get their head around the fact that, you know, something so, I suppose, you know, something that none of us need, really, is chocolate. So it's a pure, pure luxury. And, and, and associated with this pure luxury, the farmers there get such a raw deal. The price of cocoa is so, so low that actually... Today, you've got about 1.6 million children who are working illegally on those cocoa farms, basically due to poverty. And then in the worst cases, you've got about 30,000 children who are sold and trafficked to slaves. So they were like, well, we want to find out why this is happening and what's being done about it. So as part of this TV program, Tony and the two journalists basically tried to speak to the big chocolate manufacturers. Because there's seven or eight, and they control about 90% of all of the world's cocoa that's traded. And so 
Tony tried to speak to all of these companies and no one would talk to him. And if they did talk to him, they said, look, there's really little we can do. You know, it's, it's kind of not our problem. You know, we don't own the supply chain. He didn't take that as, a, as an answer. So he, he then um, filmed himself as part of this TV program, eating a handful of bars that he was pretty sure there was some form of slavery and child labor in the value chain. And he filmed himself eating these bars. And, and then he phoned the police. And he said, look, I'm knowingly, I know it's a problem and I'm, I'm, I'm buying the chocolate. Therefore, I'm knowingly financing slavery and child labor directly. So you've got to come and arrest me. And the police basically hung up on him. So I thought he was a crank caller, but Tony didn't stop there. So he, he actually flew out to West Africa and he found four boys who had been sold and trafficked as slaves on cocoa farms. And he basically got them to testify against him. And one of whom he, he flew back into Amsterdam and he hired a lawyer and he prosecuted himself for the same crime for actively financing a slavery and child labor by buying and eating cocoa because he wanted to make a, a big scene about it because he thought this was morally reprehensible. And the court case caused a real stir. It lasted for two years. And at the back of it, the judge said, look, you've got a point. But I can't draw a link between the cocoa that you've eaten and the cocoa that these boys have produced under force. And also, if I make an example of you, then it's going to set a horrible precedent for everyone else in, in Holland. And, and they love chocolate almost as much as we do in the UK. So he didn't go to jail. But off the back of it, Tony made 5,000 bars as the world's first slave-free chocolate as a bit of a PR stunt. And he called it Tony's. This is where the mouthful comes in. He called it Tony's Chocolonely because his name is Tony. And it's, it's, it's chocolate. And then the lonely element is because at the time, it was just Tony fighting the big chocolate companies to rid the cocoa industry of this inequality. So that's where the, the name came from. But the PR stunt, the bars sold out in a matter of, of hours. And we took the decision then that, look, if we're going to be really serious about changing things, the best way is to change it from within and demonstrate that there is a better way, a different way to make even better tasting chocolate that looks great, tastes great, and doesn't harm people anywhere in the value chain. We're now the number one chocolate brand in Holland, but everything that we do, the profit that we make, the chocolate that we make, is never a goal, but a means to achieving our goal, which is basically inspiring change. Wow, remarkable. Now, I mean, many customers for Tony's Chocolate Lonely probably completely oblivious, like I was, until recently that this is actually an ethical brand. It was really the exciting packaging and you just the wonderful product. If we could leave aside the ethical side for this moment, and I know it's completely part of the DNA of the brand, but there must be other reasons for your brand's success. Absolutely. Most people like you pick up the bar, buy it, fall in love with the product. And this is exactly what I did when I was on business when I went to Holland. About three years ago, I fell in love with the brand and the, the packaging and the product was in Dutch. So I couldn't I didn't understand a word of what it was saying to me. And I got back and I bought like 10 bars of this beautiful product for my family. And we were just like, wow, this is just delicious chocolate. And it was only then that actually I started reading about it and kind of the mission came last. But that is basically how people find Tony's. And it's why we make the packaging so bright, because it's the total opposite of our serious mission. So we're trying to make it as attractive as possible to pick up. And what's really interesting as well, we've never spent a penny on advertising or above the line. So we rely on that product 
to shout from people from the shelves to draw them in and then to pick them up. And when you open a bar of Tony's and you unwrap it and you get past that like beautiful wrapper inside it, you will find that the bar's unequally divided. And that, that's because the bar then tells the story of the unequal nature of the cocoa industry as well. So yeah, most people find the mission last, but fundamentally it has to be delicious tasting chocolate. Mm. Is there any evidence that, you know, the initiatives of, of Tony's and, and others in the world, you know, that the big players are looking at ways that they can provide a better livelihood for farmers? Look, I think it's pretty mixed. I think what we can do is lead by example and set the pace. And I think there are a number of other great brands out there that are doing the same. And I think for us, something like Fair Trade is a great start. We would like to see more companies adopt Fair Trade, but for us, it's a minimum. You need to go further. So we'd work off a living income reference price. But if I'm totally honest, it's not happening fast enough. And I think one of the things that we are pushing for is legislation, because I think as Unfortunately, with a lot of companies, you know, they're very much driven by shareholder value, but there needs to be some level of pressure, either be it from consumers, which we work on, but also we'd like to see a bit more legislation that would make them take a bit more responsibility for for what's happening further down the line in their value chain. Unfortunately, if I'm brutally honest, I think the longer the big companies can get away with it, the, the longer they will continue to get away with it. I wonder if you may be able to just share a little bit about the the difficulty of getting shelf space. So what, what is the success to getting that presence in a highly competitive retail space? Yeah, we've now got a full shelf in Waitrose, a full shelf in Sainsbury. So this, you're talking like nine bars in both of those sets of stores in pretty much every store. So it's great if you think that's 18 months in. And this is a really, really tough category that's, I think, dominated by handful of major, major players. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that's so, so important is buyers are consumers too, right? And if you put a great tasting product in front of them that's got a it that looks great and they like it and it's got a good backstory, then that's half the battle. And that's that's what we rely on. We've got ultimate faith that we make the best tasting chocolate in the world. That is half the battle. And I think the other thing is we have such a strong story that we've taken from Holland where we we started from nothing and now We've built to, you know, the number one brand, 20% market share. And I think if you take a great product and a bit of data and a bit of a story to most buyers, then I think that's a pretty compelling argument. And I also think that it is not in the interests of any retailer to be beholden more than they'd like to be by a handful of big chocolate companies. So if they can find someone that they think has the ability to disrupt this market, and that's what we want to do then it's easier than you think to get them to give you that space and, and take a punt on you. Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you, Ben Greensmith from Tony's Shocker Lonely. Pleasure, man. We're closing out this episode with the incredible story of Hotel Chocolat, a brand that revolutionized the UK's retail chocolate market with now over 100 retail stores and a phenomenal e-commerce business to boot. Angus Thurwell, co-founder and CEO, tells us how he created the aspirational Hotel Chocolat brand and explains the brand pillars that have guided the companies since its beginnings in the 1990s. Angus offers learnings that coffee businesses of all sizes can integrate into their own organizations, including asking their very own customers to loan them money with interest paid back in chocolate. Mmm, chocolate bonds. What a delicious idea. 
Welcome, Angus. Jeffrey, thanks for inviting me on. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into chocolate. Chocolate is one of those things that just sucks you right in. And that's pretty much what happened to me and my business partner, Peter. Um, In the very early days, we were peppermint guys, having been computer guys. And uh, the peppermint business was very, very niche concept, pure B2B as a promotional idea. And our customers kept asking if we had anything else apart from peppermints. And we realized that we'd have to start investigating chocolate. Wow, peppermints to chocolate. When was the brand of Hotel Chocolate born? Or was there another name before that? How did it all come about? We've always been a very evolutionary business and we intend to stay like that. When we were building a business up, we went from being B2B into our first consumer-facing idea, which was fast-delivered chocolates through the letterbox. And it was primarily direct response advertising in, in newspapers and bearing in mind we're in the late 1990s here, the internet. We then added to that a subscription idea, which was called the Chocolate Tasting Club. And, and then by the time we got around to 2005, it was clear that although we had good business models, we didn't have a, a great brand. And I started thinking about how we were going to achieve our next series of ambitions. And that's where I had to sort of dig into, well, what, what is it that we want to say? What is it about, you know, our chocolate? And I kept coming back to escapism. I knew for a fact I definitely wanted chocolat in it somewhere because from living in France, I'd heard French women in particular say chocolat. And I just, you know, it was sort of lodged in my memory in perpetuity. There's something about the kind of seductive sound of that. It's just like melting chocolate. And so I was searching for something to go with chocolat and I came across the word hotel and I thought, hmm, okay, that's, you know, stuff goes on in hotels, a mystique, escapism, you're kind of anonymous, it's slightly naughty, all those things. So putting the two together after I'd repeated it to myself in a mirror about a thousand times, the two words became one and I thought, okay, we could probably make this into a brand name. Wow. Yeah, that, that's it's absolute genius, really. I wonder if you could just tell us what were, the, what were the absolute pivotal moments in Hotel Chocolat's timing? Yeah, so we definitely had a sort of points of real inflection. One of them, for sure, is making a physical space begin to work. We started thinking about the brand in 2005 and eventually opened a Hotel Chocolat location in about 2008. When the Hotel Chocolat name kind of settled on us and we thought, yeah, this is definitely what we're going to do. First job is to convince our existing customer base to stay with us as we rebrand. Then the next stage was, well, would this work on a location? Could we open a shop? We were very clear at the beginning that it would have to do something more than we could already do online and with our subscription business. And the kind of column of what it could add more as a format was education, experience, tasting. And the biggest one of all was immediate gratification compared to our other models, which only offered deferred gratification. So we created a kind of more impulse range to go with our already evolved gift range and created a Hotel Chocolat space. 
I believe you, you launched a set of chocolate bonds. I wonder if you could tell us about that and how that worked. Was that also an important moment in helping you to get that scale to your business? It was really. The risk that we were facing was we had a kind of perfect storm of funding requirements. We decided to buy this cacao farm in St. Lucia. We wanted to scale up our chocolate making factory in Huntingdon. And we also wanted to open 10 new Hutter Chocolat locations a year. And wrapping all that up in one year was sort of like, eek, how are we going to be able to fund this? You know, business wisdom would be, you're doing too much. You should wind your necks in a bit, guys. But we decided to go for it and do it. And the chocolate bonds was an idea where knowing that we had great customers who had often written to me saying, oh, you know, anytime that, you know, we can get more involved in the business, you know, count us in and that type of thing, just made us think, well, we'd rather be giving the interest to our lovely customers than to a bank. So the idea of doing a chocolate bond came about where we would effectively ask our customers to loan us two or four thousand pounds. And while we were using that money to help those projects develop, we would pay interest in chocolate. And we would then repay the money in full a later date. So it's you know, classic bond construction, but the only interest is paid in chocolate. We put this idea out there and it got an embarrassingly large amount of PR, I think on the basis that everybody was expecting it to fall flat in its face. And then we raised three and a half million pounds and then we got another huge slug of PR. And then we went back and, and did it again a couple of years later and raised the same amount again. So we'd raised seven million pounds. Wow, what a story. Chocolate Bond's incredible. Angus, what would you say are the keys to your brand's success? Well, when we turned into Puta Chocolat rather than the previous brand names, we didn't really change our ethos, but we wanted to be much more purposed about our intent. And we wrote out the three key brand pillars, if you like. The, the first one is originality. We don't copy other people. We're driven by creativity. So we have our own design team who are you know, based in East London, there's like 14 of them in the team and, and it's like our own design studio. So we're creating our own shapes of chocolate, our own graphic design. So the second one is authenticity. And we very much wanted to be rooted in being, you know, the real deal in our sector. And that for us led to buying a cacao farm and getting soil under our fingernails. And then the third one is um, ethics when you're creating happy food, that there's no bad taste there. And for us, behaving ethically is inextricably linked with creating something delicious that makes people happy. Are there any things you do differently now? You know, what was I thinking at the time kind of thing? Probably our approach to growing internationally. We're definitely on a way better trajectory than we've ever been before in those massive markets. We network with lots of other consumer brands who we know, and they've all had similar experiences. It's very difficult to grow a brand internationally. What were those hard learnings of trying to expand internationally? I think the main one was in the people that we put into the markets. And what has really started to work for us is by bringing into the business the very best that we can find and people with an entrepreneurial edge to them as well. People who are not going to just do it the Hotel Chocolat UK way. We 
need to accept that for Hirta Chocolat to succeed in somewhere like Japan, we do need to respect the local culture. We need to make some innovations that are drawn from Japanese ingredients, Japanese food rituals. And, and that's what we've been doing. And they're really, really working. And the, the previous attempts we've had were very good people, very determined, very well-meaning, but just without that kind of entrepreneurial edge. That's been absolutely fantastic, Angus. I can't thank you enough for joining us here today. Jeffrey, thank you for that. And that's all this week for Fifth Wave. I wish you safe and happy holidays over the Christmas period. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear your thoughts at worldcoffeeportal.com slash fifthwave. This podcast was recorded in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, the World Coffee Portal team, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. The music you're listening to is Paris by Bandits on the Run, winners of the Coffee Music Project New York City 2017. I don't know about you, but I wish we could all take a trip to Paris right now. Have a couple of great weeks, and until next year, stay safe and stay caffeinated. You can draw me like one of your French girls I dream of getting married You dream of traveling the world I've never been to Paris But baby, maybe that's alright Cause when I look at you now I see my own city of light Hold it steady, camera ready Three, two, one, and I'm dying to expose We're getting older, getting poor If it's something God only knows I think I love you, I think I know how I think I want to, that I'm ready now But going to the script, I need to edit our seas I've never been to Paris But you can draw me like one of your French girls I dream of getting married You dream of traveling the world I've never been to Paris But baby, maybe that's alright Cause when I look at you now I see my own city of light Softcore, breathe more And I drown in what is new Sometimes it feels like all I care about is you And we could be together Forever or just until tonight I could be alive forever Or the ending is in sight Whatever it is, whoever you are You say take my hand, it's not very far Believe, believe, I choose to be happy Relief, relief, relief. I've never been to Paris But you can draw me like one of your French girls I dream of getting married You dream of traveling the world I've never been to Paris 
But baby, maybe that's alright Cause when I look at you now I see my own city of life